0: All right. Let's go ahead and get started. I will open us up in prayer, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father, you are you are good, and you are you are good to your people. You have provided so much for us. Um, our our safety. Our our comfort even. Um, but most importantly this morning we, we ask you to bring to mind um, what we have, what you've given us in your son through his life ministry and his death um, so that we can make so that we can have forgiveness before you. And we ask as we as we Open up your, your word and consider the book of Acts and the, the th- theology of Acts, that you would give us greater understanding on your, on your word, on Luke's narrative that he's given us. pray that we would um, come to know the, your plan, your plan being orchestrated in real history that's recorded for us in Acts. How we see the spread of the gospel through your word, and the witness of the apostles to you that led to the to the spread of the kingdom of the spread of the church that that we are all experiencing today. We're thank you. We're thankful for this story. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're we're continuing our study through the book. Of Acts, and we're using the book, um, "The Mission of the Triune God" by Patrick Schreiner. And today, we're going to be looking at chapter one of the book, which deals with the theme of God, the Father, in the Book of Acts, and specifically how we see this God described in the Book of Acts, or, or his place in the story, and. Spoiler alert, he plays a very large role in the book of Acts. And if you remember to last week in our introductory lesson, we saw how Schreiner argued that the, the main theological point or the center of the book of Acts must be deduced by analyzing Acts as it was given to us, as a, as a historical narrative written by Luke, who wrote a, a logically coherent account of the New Testament church and the spread of the gospel through the, the witness of the apostles. And in that narrative account, in the way that it was written and given to us, we saw that what, what Schreiner called a Lukean logic to the text or in the text, the logic of Luke, the author, where, where several very important key theological themes come to the, to the surface in the story of Acts, in the narrative. And all of these themes are part of a, of a coherent system of beliefs that, that are interdependent on each other. So Schreiner gives this argument of what he believes to be the theological center of Acts after he, he's analyzing Acts in this biblical theological way, taking the text as it was given. And that was pretty much the lesson last week, the, the handout I gave you last week. It's also, if you have the book now, you, you can see that chart in the introduction. And I'm just going to read again this, this system, the, the logic of Acts, that Schreiner articulates. More importantly, I think, what, what Luke articulates in the book of Acts. So remember, it reads, First, God the Father orchestrates... Through Christ who lives and rules, and through the empowering Spirit, causing the word to multiply, bringing salvation to all people groups, forming the church which witnesses to the ends of the earth. And those are going to be all of those seven different prepositions are going to be the chapters that we're going to go through over the next couple of months. So, the first chapter. Today is going to be that first preposition, um, which is that God the Father orchestrates in the book of Acts. God the Father orchestrates, which is aptly the title of the first chapter. And we can begin thinking about this chapter by thinking through the claim that, that really every theological development, every theological truth, or every concept or meaning we find in a historical narrative in the Bible or any biblical text, they all have this as a fundamental truth underlying it. That is that God the Father plans and orchestrates all actions, all things. And this is important, it's fundamental, because this is what we confess about God. That he is the the sovereign over the, the entirety of creation, over the universe, meaning he has full control over all things, and he, he orchestrates his decreed will, his, his providence in his creation to an ultimate end, fulfilling a plan that he has. Meaning there, there's nothing that happens outside of God's control and outside of his purposes and his plan for his creation. So really, God the Father orchestrating orchestrating events for His plan to be fulfilled, and then these events actually occurring in time and space and history, those truths, they're actually the foundation for everything. Put more simply, God has a plan, and it will be accomplished in history. So when we come to His Word, that is a historical narrative, we're going to see that play out in the text. We're going to see the fulfillment of the plan of God play out in the text. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Acts. So, though most theological works on Acts don't begin here with with God the Father and His orchestrating events, it's clear that's where the book of Acts starts if we're following the, the logic of Luke. And it's evident that throughout the narrative, the entire narrative, that, that all actions finds its source and stems from the Father, to quote Schreiner. All actions find their source and stems from the Father and Acts. So any theology, including a theology of, theology of Acts, can't speak this morning, a theology of Acts must start with God the Father, because every other theological truth or implication flows out of the Father's plan. And if you have the book, Schreiner makes this point very effectively on page 30 by chronicling all the times God the Father is mentioned in the book of Acts. I actually don't know if it's an exhaustive list, but it's a really long list. And... And all the times that Luke attests to God in in the narrative. I'm not going to give all the reference verses. You can look it up in the book and look up those verses. Um, But I would encourage you to to look them up and just marvel at, at God's plan revealed for us in Acts. But I'm going to list down everything Shriner says we can say is attributed to God in Acts. So in Acts, we see the Father acts... He speaks, he attests to Jesus, he raised Jesus from the dead, he anointed Jesus, he appointed Jesus to be judge, he's chronicled as having sworn an oath to David, he's seated in the heavens, he made Jesus Lord, Messiah, leader, and savior. He calls people, we see that he he deserves worship, he fulfilled what he said in the scriptures, He deserves obedience, He listens, He reveals, He orchestrates, He delivers, He punishes. He has power, He he gave the Holy Spirit. He's described as glorious, great, gracious, present, and alive. He appoints witnesses, He performs wonders, He calls, He created all things, He He commands, He demands repentance, He deserves thanks. He has a plan. He established the church, and he provides salvation. And I even skipped a few of those references in the book. So the the point is, and I think the point's very clear, that God the Father is a major actor in Acts. He's a major player in the narrative. And this leads some, like, like Dr. John Squires, to conclude the plan of God, quote, functions as the foundational theological motif or theological theme in Acts. And I think that's exactly right as we we study Acts in the narrative. And it makes most sense of our theological commitments we're expecting to find in Luke's well-ordered narrative. And so we can summarize this point by quoting Schreiner. He, he, he writes, Luke's principal, theological, philosophical, logical compass is in the heavens. By that, mean, by that he means where, where God is, where God dwells. So, so Luke's principal, theological, philosophical, logical compass is in the heavens. All earthly actions then have prior orchestration and a plan. So prior orchestration to all human actions that we see in Acts. And Schreiner seeks to prove this or show this, how God's orchestrating is central in Acts by by focusing on three areas. First, he looks at the plan of God in Acts. The plan of God in Acts. Then he looks at a prominent agent to accomplish this plan in Acts, the, the Word, God's Word which leads to the final section, which is what the word of God brings forth in this plan, which is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in this age. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at God's plan. Closely related to that is fulfillment. God's plan and fulfillment of his plan. We're going to look at God's word in the book of Acts and then his kingdom in the book of Acts. Pause here. Any comments, questions? But it's also the agency of the Spirit. Yes. That's going to be chapter 3. It's going to be specifically on that. Um, But the Spirit is definitely an agent of the plan in the mission of the triune God. Big player. Anything else? So let's think through the concept of, of the plan of God. Um, The Greek word Luke uses in Acts to refer to God's plan is bouillé, which functioned mainly as a a government or or political term. Schreiner says it was used frequently in the cities of the the Roman Empire, obviously in ancient Greece where where the language developed, referring to an administrative plan or a, a, a management expression. So it's a plan for a city or a government of, of a city for the functioning or administration of that city to, to function, a, a plan in that sense. And so Luke is using the term to describe the plan of God, that is, the, the, that the Father to fulfill his promises by establishing the new covenant community that will bring the Gospels to the ends of the earth. That's what we see as Acts develops. So you could say his His global administrative kingdom plan of his kingdom coming in this age, a a plan to bring blessing to the nations, which we see very clearly um, in earlier promises in Scripture, like the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 to be a a blessing to all nations. We're, We're seeing that plan being fulfilled in action in Acts. And this word and theme is sort of like what Schreiner calls a ballast, an anchor for every other theme in Acts. Every other actor, every other event in the story of Acts are subsidiary to the larger story of God's divine activity. Which is just a fancy way of saying God's plan. And we see this clearly in the references to the Son and the Spirit. They act as as agents of the plan of God being fulfilled. So Acts 2, Acts 2 verses 22 and 23 say this clearly. Starting in verse 22, we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God's plan is is enacted or centered on Jesus' death, Jesus' crucifixion. And later in Acts 2, we see that, that His resurrection, His glorification are also part of the plan of God Thus we can see how, how the Son of God is an agent of God's eternal plan to, to bring salvation to His people through His Son's death and resurrection. Also in Acts 2, we, we see the sending of the Spirit as He falls on God's people. And this is clearly viewed as a fulfillment of, of Old Covenant promises according to Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17. So we could say it's a fulfillment of what? A fulfillment of the plan of God. So through God the Son and God the Spirit, we see, we see the, I would say, the primary agents in Acts that fulfill and accomplish God's plan or, or the mission of God in creation. But notice, even though it's not explicitly stated, although I do think it's, it's pretty clear, but notice that what the theological foundation of the Son and the Spirit acting is, it is the orchestrating plan of God. So you see that this is the foundation of the sending of the Son and the Spirit is the orchestrating plan of God being enacted in history, the mission of the Trinity. It's according to the plan of God the Father. And something we see in Acts, and what what many, many um, find to be a prominent theme in the book, is the clear opposition to God's plan. We see this over and over again in, in many narratives in the book of Acts, that there's clear opposition to this plan of salvation and the spread of the gospel and kingdom advancement. So God's advancement of his kingdom, right, it doesn't go unopposed in the narrative, And ironically, in the story, and this is true probably for for the entirety of the Bible, but ironically, every effort to stop God's plan is only used to further it. Schreiner points out two clear examples of this in Acts. First, in Acts 4, Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. we see that the the apostles were just castigated by the religious leaders for performing a resurrection miracle. And they gather to pray for boldness in the face of this challenge. And in verses 27 and 28, the apostles say that those gathered in the city against Jesus were brought there by God and they do whatever your hand, that's God, whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. They do whatever your plan, whatever God's plan has predestined to take place. So notice the the apostles put the direct and hostile opposition to their ministry, to to their gospel ministry, the advancement of the kingdom. They put the opposition of that under the banner of the plan of God. It again shows up that persecution of God's people is not outside of God's plan in any way. It's in fact what the actually the, the very plan of God to advance His purposes, which is an amazing truth and comfort to God's people in all ages. The other event that, that shows this clearly, um, I had not ever noticed this story. This is fascinating. It's in Acts 5 with a speech from Gamaliel. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, but that's how we're going with it. Gamaliel He's a Pharisee, and the apostles were once again arrested for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus, and Triner points out in Acts 5, 38 through 39, Gamaliel's advising the other Pharisees, the other religious leaders, and he says this. He says, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men keep away from the apostles, and let let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. You might even be found opposing God. So Gamaliel recognizes that if this plan, same word, bouillé, is of human origins, so the, the preaching and healing ministry of the apostles, if it is of human origin, then it will fail. But if it is from God, if it's God's plan, then you can't stop it. There is no stopping it. And you actually will, will fi- be found opposing God. So he concludes that they shouldn't mess with the apostles. They shouldn't imprison them, and they, they listen at that time. And really, it's an amazing text with a, an amazing insight And according to Schreiner, it sort of sets out a paradigm that we see in the rest of Acts, um, or or what he calls two paths in Luke's theology, which is just loving God's plan, being obedient to God's plan, or warring against God's plan, being an agent of disruption to God's plan. And really, the, what we see is there's no neutrality in response to God's acting in creation. There's no neutrality in response to God's orchestrating, God's plan. You either get on the train, that's God's plan, or you get run over the train. There's, there's, You're either with or against God's program. And that's what we see play out in the book of Acts. Now, a, a theme that's that's... Extremely important in the book of Acts, it's really closely related to the plan of God, is the theme of fulfillment. Of fulfillment. And Schreiner argues that from the smallest story to the largest story in Acts, all of it can be put under the banner of fulfillment. Fulfillment of God's plan of salvation through, throughout history. And we should expect to see this, because if you remember to last week, or if you read the introduction of the book... We should expect to see this because the reason Luke said he was writing, both Luke and Acts, Luke-Acts, the reason he was writing was to bring assurance that everything that has happened, everything that has happened is the fulfillment of God's plan. That's the reason he's writing, so we should expect to see fulfillment all over the place. And That's exactly what we find. We find fulfillment of the Scriptures, fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, fulfillment of God's plan throughout history in the book of Acts. It's one of the most important features to have on the front of your mind when when reading through Acts, to be looking for, to be noticing these connections or or these fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures. And we see this in the opening chapter, which many have rightly pointed out that Acts 1.8... Is functions as something like the table of contents of the book of Acts. It's an extremely important statement in the book of Acts. Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's a really important verse because in the rest of Acts we see in detail how the apostles in the church do this. How, the, how they're witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Rome at large, which, which functions as, as the ends of the earth. And what Schreiner points out in, is that this verse is also a direct callback and fulfillment of prophecies we see in Isaiah. You can see these connections on, on the handout there and and. Chart 1.2, I think it is. It's also in the book somewhere. And here's why that matters. These connections, these fulfillments matter. Because if if Acts 1.8 is the table of contents or programmatic statement that is central to Acts, which it is, then we can say Acts fulfills Isianic prophecy. And I would argue then we should expect to see fulfillment of other Old Testament promises all over the place If this, this central s- statement, this central like paradigmatic statement is fulfillment. It sets the stage, so to speak, for finding fulfillment in the rest of the narrative. And this is exactly what we find. I'm just going to run these down because it's it's really amazing to see. I'm not going to go through the full list that Shriner gives in the book, but you can find that on pages 35 and 36. Um, But but here's just uh, some fulfillments that we see, I would say some major fulfillments that we see in Acts. Jesus ascends to the heavens in Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen, the pouring up of the Holy Spirit, right, that happens in Acts two, fulfills Joel two verses twenty eight through thirty two. Peter's sermon in in Acts three eleven through twenty six. It's about the the raised servant. It fulfills the servant servant themes in Isaiah fifty three. Acts. A bigger section, Acts 8 through 12, is also a fulfillment of Scripture. In this narrative, Philip, led by God, united Samaria to Jerusalem, fulfilling what we see in in Ezekiel 37. Antioch becomes the, the first multi ethnic gathering of the new covenant in Acts 11 19 through 30, fulfilling or realizing Isaiah chapter 55, 3 through 5. The next big section of Acts, which is Acts 13 through 20, also fulfills scriptures. As Paul's introduced into the story, Paul goes to the coastland and islands, which fulfills Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 24, 15. You really need to get the book because all this is in there and then you don't have to write it down. But this is good. Paul proclaims to Jesus as a, a light to the Gentiles, or proclaims that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles, fulfilling Isaiah 49.6. Even the ending of Acts and Israel's rejection of Paul's message, Luke finds to be in fulfillment of Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. Right, I didn't even get to probably half of the references and, and uh, allusions to Old Testament texts in that's included in Schreiner's work, but but his point is, Schreiner's point is that there's not really a single narrative in the Book of Acts that falls outside of fulfillment, and fulfillment of God's plan. So we can say then about Acts that Luke's driving purpose is to show that, to show the early church, to show his his original audience that everything is going according to plan, everything's being fulfilled as it. It's supposed to be, as as God has promised. Schreiner writes, Overall, the point of Acts is clear. The Father orchestrates all that occurs in Acts according to His will, and this is His plan. And this then leads to one of the, the biggest agents of enacting this plan that we see in the Acts, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, which accomplishes much of this fulfillment. But any questions, comments? So if, if the plan of God and the orchestrating of that plan by God comes, comes logically first in Acts, then we need to look for agents to accomplish his plan. Who's going to accomplish this plan? And we mentioned a couple, right? The, the Son and the spirit are, are very big. We're going to cover the next two weeks in our study more fully. But one agent to accomplish God's plan in Acts that's less talked about is the Word of God. The Word of God. And Chiron also going to spend a whole chapter on this topic. But we can introduce it today because it's important to consider when thinking about God and the orchestration of His plan. And the first thing we can say about the Word of God in Acts is that the Word is not just mere information. It's not, the, it's not just the content of the plan of God. I think that's what, one way you might want to think about it. So the word doesn't just inform us on what the plan of God is. Rather, the word in acts is, is active. It's a living and active word. And we should expect that because that is what we see. That's the case throughout the scriptures. Think of Genesis 1. God creates the world and the entire creation by what? His His word. It's the agent to enact God's plan. This is what Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 are talking about when when Isaiah writes that God's word doesn't return to him void. It, it, It accomplishes what God's purposes are in his creation. So we see both in the Gospels and then continuing in Acts, the word of God grow and spread. That's what we see described of it. It's something that grows and spread, which is interesting to think about words or a word. And Schreiner gives a helpful illustration of the word of God being like the soil of the earth and the kingdom of God or the soil of the earth that the kingdom of God will grow in. So we can almost think of Acts as as like a a preparatory agent for the spread of the gospel in Acts. And we see that the, the spirit... This is get to Dennis' point. The Spirit's closely related to the Word. The Spirit empowers the apostles on, on mission to spread this Word of God or what is some come, sometimes called next the Word of the Lord. This is, this is God's Word. And the apostles go, and we see them, they go around and they preach and they teach it. They teach this Word. And I think shorthand for what Luke is referring to or the contents of the Word of God is, is simply... the the gospel message, the message of salvation that the apostles are going and proclaiming and preaching and teaching. That's the word in Acts. That's the word that is spreading and growing through the ministry of the early church. And what we see is that the word is the agent of new creation. Luke refers to the word again, growing and multiplying. We see this clearly in three places. I think this is also... Um, On that handout, hopefully. Uh, Table 1.3. Acts 6 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So notice, right? The word continued, but what increased, or the word continued to increase, and what do we see multiplied? Disciples, thanks, sorry, I knew you would come through. Disciples multiplied greatly. So notice that connection. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19, 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And again, what Luke means here by growing, multiplying, and increasing, I think it's interesting. Because he's not talking about literal words growing in some way. But in the context, he's talking about the growth of, this, of his new covenant community, of the new covenant community, the church. Charner points out that we see this exact same language being referred to of the old covenant people of God in Exodus. Very similar language and, and patterns of language we see in Exodus 1, specifically in verses Exodus, or Exodus 1, verses 7, 12, and 20. Remember there that the, the people, the old covenant people, are increased and multiplied and numbered greatly in Egypt. And I think Luke is intentionally connecting this idea that we see in Exodus of increasing in number, of advancing, and referring to God's word increasing and multiplying as more and more, and more people come to Christ and, and enter into the new covenant community, the new covenant people of God. And the function, then, that the Word of God is 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 the agent of the New Covenant community's growth, of of its numerical growth as it spreads, as the Word spreads, as the Gospel spread um, to the ends of the earth, which is very closely associated to the last topic we're going to talk about today, which is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, the, the kingdom of God is something we see throughout Scripture. It's not a New Testament invention. From the beginning, God gave dominion or rule to humanity to rule his creation as as vice regents of the creation. He gave them land to rule, right? He gave them the garden to, to rule and have dominion over. All of that is kingdom language. Though, as we know, humanity failed in this rule, they didn't rule as they ought to. They, they sinned through the sin of Adam, and he was expelled from the land. And then the kingship and, and kingdom that we see then in the Old Testament scriptures, it's always warped. It's not as it ought to be in the Old Testament. And so we see there's always a looking forward. If you read the Old Testament, right, there's always a looking forward to a future kingdom. They're looking forward to a future king who's going to consummate the true kingdom of God and all of its glory. It's what many of the, the prophets are about. Fast forward to the New Testament, enter into the story of the king of kings, Jesus. And this king actually, right, we see him, he gave up his life and death to be substitute a substitute for his people to pay the penalty for their sins. But through his resurrection from the dead, we, we know he is still king. He is ruler. He rules over the entire creation. And he rules over his people. And so through his death and through his resurrection, he's actually creating a new people. Right? His death and resurrection, we can also just called the gospel message. This is the word they're proclaiming in Acts. This is what the apostles are proclaiming. It's creating a new people. In Acts, we see the story of this kingdom of God that Jesus spoke and taught so much about in his earthly ministry. And we see this kingdom advance in the world in certain ways. Now, it's often been noted that there's actually not much kingdom of God language in Acts, which is entirely true. It's not mentioned a lot. But Schreiner points out very helpfully that when the kingdom of God shows up in Acts, when Luke uses the language, it's very intentionally. It's placed purposely in very important times in the narrative. And that's really important for us to note as we read Acts. And it should clue us off if Luke is using the word kingdom and the concept of the kingdom of God at important times in the narrative. That means it's an important theme, even if it's not showing up a lot in in number if he's not using the word a ton in the narrative does that make sense it's showing up at important times in the narrative which clues us that this is an important concept in the book so there are there are two kingdom references at the very beginning of the book so chapter one verses three and six and then two at the very end of the book i also think there's a chart here of this too last one yes good Um, two at the very end of the book, so chapter 28, verses 23 and 31, and these then function as the bookends to the narrative, which again signify the importance to the story. You place something at the beginning and the end, it elevates the importance of that theme. There's also four references in the body of the book of Acts, which are all placed at key transition points in the narrative. So you can, yeah, you can find these on the, the chart 1.4. And we're going to go into these in a little more detail. But the kingdom comes up very quickly in Acts, Acts 1.3. When Jesus, before his ascension, is with his disciples for 40 days, he says he was speaking with them about the kingdom of God. We can imply he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. A few verses later, the disciples come to him and they ask him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Really important question. Schreiner argues that these two references at the beginning of the book create expectations shaping how we read the rest of the narrative. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus' answers to the disciples' questions describes the spread of the kingdom everywhere. That's what the answer is going to describe. And then the contents of Acts is actually going to just chronicle that that spread of the kingdom everywhere. The father's plan for his kingdom. The two references at the end of the book are also very important. So in Acts 28, 23, and 31, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, but Luke is making the point that the word of God still goes forth, even while Paul is in prison. And Paul was all the day long, this is what we see written, Paul was all the day long expounding the word of God, and testifying to the kingdom of God. The very last verse of the book closes with the same kingdom framework by citing that that Paul continued proclaiming the kingdom of God. Paul continued proclaiming the kingdom of God. So this is key. Both at the very beginning and the very end of the narrative, we see a conceptual framework Luke's giving us. A framework for the whole of Acts. Meaning the, the kingdom of God though not mentioned a ton in the story by Luke, is absolutely essential to the narrative. And that's really important for us to get as, as we read Acts. And more proof for this can be found in the other references to the kingdom of God, where Luke places them in essential parts of the narrative, or, or you could think of them as turning points in the story specifically as it relates to the spread of the Word of God and the expanse of the kingdom. Again, you can see all that on, on the chart. All, the, all these four kingdom references map onto the geographical expansion or progression of the gospel message, which makes sense because it's the kingdom advancing in this age. And, and Schreiner goes into a lot more detail in this in the, in the section on and his section on this in the book. I encourage you to read that, um, study those passages. I think it's pretty convincing. But the point, really, is that each of Luke's narrative, it, or each block of Luke's narrative, if you can think of them as chapters, each main section of the book of Acts, of Luke's narrative, includes at least one reference to the kingdom, which again just shows its importance in the narrative at the key turning points in the story. Now, this gets to the more pressing questions. You might be like, OK, that's great. But what is it? <laughs> what is the kingdom of God? And if the apostles are proclaiming the kingdom of God, then, then where exactly is it? What is it? Um, and I think that's at the heart of the disciples' question in Acts 1 and Acts 1-7 about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus' response is so fundamental for our understanding of the kingdom of God in this age. Jesus says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Notice again, He's appealing to the plan of God. We talked about that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Schreiner points out Jesus essentially answers them with a no. I'm not establishing the kingdom right now in verse 7. right? It's not for you to know, disciples. And then he answers with, with a yes in verse 8. That the Spirit will come and you will be my witnesses. To put in more theological terms, we could say that Jesus is saying the kingdom is already here, but it's not fully established. It's where we get the language of there's an already not yet have you've heard that, an already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God in this age. And it's going to be characteristic of this age until Christ's final return. And verse 7 makes clear that the consummation plan of the kingdom is set by the Father, and it's not for us to know. Big implication here, I think, is that there's nothing we can do then to, to make it happen, God is consummating his kingdom in his own timing, in his own way, according to his own plan. However, in verse 8, the disciples will be witnesses to the king. They'll be witnesses to the king of the kingdom, through the power of the spirit that will be sent to indwell them, to indwell us. And they'll be witnesses to the ends of the world. So they're witnesses to the king of the kingdom of God, to the end of the world. And so in a sense, we can say Jesus is reframing the disciples' question. or are reframing how they should view the kingdom on this earth. The kingdom is the spirit of God empowering, witnessing to Jesus. And as we see the story go along in Acts, that, that happens as we've seen through the, the spread of the word of God and the gospel message. And what do we see happen? It brings salvation. It brings salvation from people from all nations from to the ends of the earth. So the point is, that's how the kingdom will advance. That is how the kingdom will advance. That's how Jesus is reframing their idea of what the kingdom actually is. There's no institutional or state power necessary for the spread. And we only need the, the power of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the faithful spread of the word, and God's kingdom will advance. God's kingdom will advance. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts as we read the story. And Schreiner points out that one of Luke's major emphasis when he is writing about the kingdom of God or writing about the early church is highlighting what what he calls the upside-down nature of the kingdom or what could be called the, the surprising converts to the kingdom. We see this in Luke a lot, too, or in, in the Gospels generally, as Jesus proclaims the good news to the poor and the oppressed. Many of his miracles are performed on those whom society has deemed not wanted or, or unworthy. And in Acts, we, say, we see the same thing happening. We see the same theme continuing as the kingdom advances. The, the marginalized, the, the rejected, the poor, women, Samaritans, Gentiles, the lame, those are the kingdom citizens who actually respond positively to the kingdom message. They respond to the gospel. And this is why this is important. Because at the outset of the New Testament church, God saving these types of people and Luke highlighting them throughout the book of Luke and Acts, it makes a point abundantly clear, a very important point. And it makes it over and over and over again that all people are welcome into God's kingdom. All people are welcome into God's kingdom, no matter social status, gender, ethnicity. All people can bend the knee to King Jesus. That's that's why Luke is emphasizing so much. And it's emphasized also because this is pretty brand new. It might be common to us because we live 2,000 years after this and we live in societies that have been influenced by this way um, of thinking that the the gospel has introduced, that the kingdom of God being spread to the nations has introduced. But this was completely radical in the context it was written of. And we know this because this drove up the church's persecution it wasn't the best like church growth strategy because the religious leaders of the day found it to be abhorrent in a lot of ways but we do know god grew his church god grew his church in his way the last thing to say about the kingdom quickly is there's many miracles we see in acts and they function or their function is to give assurance to this new group of believers, the, the early church, to give assurance that God's plan is working and God's kingdom is, is happening. It's advancing in the present. It's, it's an attestation to their ministry. That, or we could say that, that Acts 1.8, the verse we just read, that Acts 1.8 is actually happening, that the gospel is spreading, the kingdom is advancing to the ends of the earth. And thus we can see then how miracles have more to do with the transitional nature of the book. That's a category we talked about last week in the introduction. Meaning the miracles are given by the Spirit because of the unique time and salvation history, because of the, the transitional nature of the period of history. And they're not programmatic. That was the other category that, that Acts has given to us. Meaning they're not um, things we should be expecting to occur in our current day and age. Because they were given for a specific reason. They were given for the establishment of the church as the the kingdom of God is advancing in the age at that very early time in the history of the church. Right after Jesus' ascension and the formation of the church, they point to the presence of Jesus' kingdom coming into direct conflict with the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan. That's why I think there's, there's so much spiritual warfare, clear spiritual warfare happening in the book of Acts and these miraculous events. A lot of people would disagree with that statement, but I think it's, pretty, I think it's a good argument of why. If you've ever read Acts and you're like, why is that and why am I not raising dead people from the ground? <laughs> okay, what's is something wrong with my faith? I think a, a good answer to that is no, there's not anything wrong with your faith but that these events were occurring because of the moment that they occurred in salvation history, as the establishment of the church was taking place and the advancement of the kingdom was initially occurring in the New Testament period. So, whoa, we're pretty early. Y'all didn't talk much. But, that's okay. Just to conclude, what we've kind of seen, the big point here, I hope that we can see how a theology of Acts logically begins, it must begin with the one who orchestrates and plans everything to happen God the Father. We saw his plan, his word, and his kingdom advance. And these then really are the foundation of the, the, the foundation driving force and themes in the book of Acts. And therefore, all other themes that we're going to cover in this book that we see in the book of Acts are, are linked to this. They're, they're subsidiary themes. They, they grow out of or from this major theme of God the Father's plan. Shriner writes, The Father decisively interrupted history through the sending of the Son and the Spirit. And not seeing the Father's role in all of Luke's recounting overlooks a major refrain if not the major refrain of the story. I think that's exactly right, and that's why I think it's important that we can nail this down, the importance of God the Father's plan orchestrating in the story, because it truly is the foundation for our theology of Acts. So, any final questions, comments? Rob or Art, you fight about it. Rob, go ahead. Okay, Rob. Yes. I think he's going to get more to that in chapter 3 of the book, if I remember correctly. And he was this chapter is more talking about the Word, which is in close connection with the Spirit. But, but you were talking about why, why do we not see these things that time? Amen. Well, that's, what, that's exactly right. Chapters, well, we did cover it in the uh, cessationism study. I don't remember how long ago that was, but yes, I agree with that completely. No land? Uh, Texas. Just kidding. I a joke. <laughs> I wanted to say about kingdom, because we don't, we're not... Yeah, that's helpful, connecting it to, to Jesus' direct words of what it will happen, and then we get to see that play out in Acts pretty clearly, which I think would be an encouragement to them and us. John? Uh, I, is he going to get to... I don't remember him doing that. I could be wrong. I can't remember everything, but... I don't remember that, Um, but that would be very interesting. I haven't thought about that either. Um, All right. Thank you all so much for listening, participating. Um, You are dismissed.